Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. In today's episode, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer continues the series on the Beatitudes called Life Signs of a Believer. So far, we've looked at the poor in spirit, those who mourn, and today we walk down the road of meekness. Today's Beatitude is Blessed are the meek. If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Now, here's Heath. This morning on the Beatitudes, Latin Beatus, which is just their way of translating the word blessed. How each one of the attributes begins in the Beatitudes is blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. We remember that blessed here, uh, sometimes it can be translated happy, but we need to understand what kind of happiness that is. It's not happy because I had a steak dinner, happy because my kids joined me in church today, happy because it's warm outside and it could be a lot colder. It's not that kind of happy. It's the kind of happiness, that, that the joy that we derive from knowing that we are rightly related with God. We rejoice in that. That if nothing else goes right for us in this life, in this world, we know that the favor of God rests upon his children and that uh, even this world, even though it may not be everything that you hoped it would be, all of your goals, hopes, and dreams have not come to fruition, yet we can be a happy people because God's favor rests upon us. Remember that these Beatitudes... Matthew 4.23, right before this passage, said Jesus is preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And so Jesus is introducing what kingdom children look like. That's why we call this series The Life Signs of a Believer. That the greatest evidence that you're a born-again child of God is not because you have a distant memory of walking an aisle or praying a prayer. It's not because you can open up the flyleaf of your Bible and see that you've got your name written there and you remember the date. That is not what converts you, and that isn't, shouldn't be that which gives you confidence that you're a child of God. The greatest evidence that you belong to God, that his DNA is inside you, that he has regenerated you, is that you look and act like him. That's the greatest evidence you have that you're a child of God. That's why you can be happy and rejoice. As you see these qualities in your life and increasing, they give us hope that we belong to him. And so these are the life signs of a believer. We talked about being poor in spirit. means we're impoverished, that in our spirit we come before God to realize that in my flesh dwells no good thing. I can't show God my spiritual resume and say, this is why I deserve to be in heaven in your kingdom. So we're poor in spirit. We come to God hat in hand, saying, God, all I have comes from you. We saw how blessed are those who mourn. We mourn over our sins. We lament that we repent when we come to Jesus. And we, as we stand in the presence of of just a a perfectly holy and divine being, we begin to look at ourselves and see, wow, I've got a lot of sin in my life. And we repent over that and we mourn over our sins, not just because consequences have taken over, but because we've offended a holy God. And today we come to, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We don't really know often what meekness is because quite honestly, we don't love the word meekness. It's not a term that we as Americans like. It kind of goes against our desired persona. You know, we're proud, strong, fierce, independent Americans. And, you know, cue the flag waving and an eagle doing a flyby, an explosion. And, you know, and that's just, that's, we're Americans. We don't, we aren't meek. Meekness rhymes with weakness. And there's nothing more un-American than weakness. So I'm not going to be meek. 
right? That's a lot, we're in a lot of trouble if that's how we perceive meekness to be. I was watching or listening to a podcast. A fellow named Todd Friel does these Witness Wednesdays. He's on the campus of Georgia Tech, and he's talking to a boy who grew up in a Southern Baptist church, okay? But now he's in college, and he knows better, so he's no longer a believer. And you know what his primary, his chief complaint was why he's not a believer today? He doesn't believe in meekness. He hates the concept that we should be a meek people. We don't like meekness, and so we better, we better understand what it is. We better define it well. So number one, we're gonna look at the definition of meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The word meekness is closely associated with the term humility, and is often translated in your Bibles as gentleness. Usually in the New Testament, when you see the word gentle, it's some form of this word here, meaning meek. Uh, meekness refers to a soul that is mellow. Okay? It refers to a mildness of disposition. It is because we have a settled trust and a confidence and faith in God that he's in control, so I don't have to be. Because God is sovereign of the universe and he's fully in control, I don't have to be in control. And so I can be calm. I don't have to be anxious. I don't have to scratch and claw and bite for what I want in life. I can trust God with it. Meekness is not weakness any more than uh, when you look at a thoroughbred horse that you see weakness there. Just because you, you see this mighty horse standing there, and you just see the muscles rippling on this horse, but he's standing in complete control, on, you know, with the reins and everything on. Do you look at that horse and go, what a weak horse that is? You don't look at a horse like that and think that. You think, what a mighty beast. And what composure, what self-control, how proud your master must be of you that even though you have the power and strength to trample your master to death, yet you're going to surrender your, the, the control of your strength to your master. That's ultimately what meekness is. It's not weak. It's that you've learned to trust someone who's stronger. It's that we've submitted our, our power and might to God. Have you ever been around a horse that's unbroken? What can you do with an unbroken horse? <laughs> you can't do much with an unbroken horse, can you? I know that full well in my life. I'm, I'm just going to be honest with you, testimonial here. I've not had a lot of good experience with horses. And don't give me an email about how you love horses more than humans and, and how horses are really that great. Okay, but I've had some tough experiences dating back to when I was five years old. I met Mrs. Shears, Sunday school picnic, and she gets out her Shetland pony. And all the kids get a little pony ride. I was the last kid in the class to get a pony ride. I get up on the Shetland horse, and you know what it does? A little pony. It bucks me straight off. It was just instantaneous. I'm looking up at the sky, and my wind is taken out of my lungs. Had no idea what that was. This horse was just, just reared up on me. Another time, I got on a horse. We were babysitting a couple horses for my dad's uncle, whatever that makes him to us. And these two horses, we decided, you know what? We're farm kids. We'll try new things. We're going to ride these horses bareback. Mind you, we're not an equestrian family. I don't know the first thing about horses. We just hop on the horse. Well, my, uh, of course, being the good brother that I am, I had my brother get on first, and this horse just bolted down the quarter-mile driveway we have at our house. I mean, just full gallop. I'm already preparing my brother's eulogy in my mind. Like, that's the last time I'm seeing Clint. I mean, that brother's out of here. Uh, so I thought, well, you know what? I'll give it a try. And I get on the horse, and it scrapes me off at the nearest branch. It just ducks his head and just just pushes me right off the back end of the horse. Uh, you know what, not, you know, not to be undone by just a couple of experiences. In my adult years, my first year of marriage, my wife and I went to Kansas City. Some of you met my father-in-law, Gary Myers, and he decided for whatever reason, he wants me to ride a horse uh, with his daughter. And so we, we, he takes us to a fellow's house named Toad Licker. I have no idea. 
where that name comes from, I don't remember, but Mr. Toadlicker had several horses. And he decided he's gonna put me on a freshly broken Arabian. Translation, freshly broken means he ain't yet broken yet, but I hope you'll finish the job. So I get on this Arabian horse and they start just trotting down the trail. Everything looks fine so far. I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe my past experiences aren't so bad. And maybe I can learn to love riding horses. And so we get on this trail, but then we come up to this wide open field that's like probably a quarter mile long. And as soon as we hit the, the front of that field, my horse heard the trumpets of the Kentucky Derby. And it just, I kid you not, he just took off. And mind you, I don't know the first thing about riding. So my, my no, I'm not riding correctly. And yes, it's my fault. But my bottom's hitting the saddle like a jackhammer. And I, I lose my footing in one of the stirrups. And I start to slide sideways in a full gallop. Now, for me, I'm not sure quite what to do. The only thing I do know to do is the brakes on the horse as you pull back on the reins, right? So, so I do. I pull back on the reins with all my might. The horse's face is straight up in the sky. I thought, surely this horse will stop running. This horse is very confidently running blind at this point. He's looking up at the sky, and he's just going as hard as he can. In fact, he started whipping his head back and forth in rebellion. And I was sure I'm going to go right underneath here and just get ground up by the meat grinder of this horse's hooves. Eventually, he got to the end of the field and he stopped running when he was good and ready. Do you think I wanted to ride him anymore? I was like, hey, pal, hey, Mr. Toadlicker, let's switch horses. How about that? And so we did. You know? An unbroken horse is a terrifying thing. It's a mighty horse. A horse, I will, in fact, I will say a horse that is unbroken is useless in all ways to his master a horse that is not meek. He's not surrendered his strength to another. And that's how it is with us too. Do you think I want to go back right now and ride a horse? It's not because I hate horses. I've had a lot of bad experiences with them. I'm a little gun shy when it comes to horses now because I've rode horses that weren't always having a good temperament. In the same way, child of God, when we're not meek and we don't surrender our control to our Father, do you think that makes some people gun-shy from coming back to church too? Are there people out there who are hurt because they went to church and somebody who was not meek, who was unbroken, who had not submitted to their master, had caused hurt and pain to them, and now they're gun-shy to come to church? It's the same thing. Well, meekness is something we try to define a little bit, but I think it's best when we kind of look at living, breathing examples of meekness, how does meekness, a settled trust and confidence, a faith in God that he's in control, how does that work its way out in my life? And so we're gonna look at three examples here. Number two, the display of meekness. And A, the first example we're gonna look at here is Job. What does meekness look like when I'm under trial? Anybody here never had a trial, never had a hardship? Your life has just been, you know, rainbows, unicorns, golden brick road, and lattes your whole life? No, okay. We all go through trial. So we need to know how to get through trial, how meekness works itself out in our life. And so this settled trust in God means that I don't panic when I get into trial. Even though I'm under great pain, I don't change how I live. I don't stop coming to church. I don't stop reading my Bible. I don't stop praying. I don't get mad at God. I don't resent God for the trial. That's not meekness. That's a, that's a horse rearing up its head and throwing his head side to side. When we're meek and we have that settled confidence that God is good no matter what, it's not going to change how we live. Look at the example of Job. You've, those of you who've read through the book of Job, you understand that in the first chapter, God describes him as an upright man who shuns evil. He's a good guy. We like him. He's a faithful churchgoer. Not only that, but he's converted. <laughs> 
And so Job, he goes through, in the beginning of the book, Satan wants to test him, says he only loves you, God, because you do good things for him. God says, take what you want, but don't take his life. And so Satan did. Satan took everything he had, killed all of his servants, killed all of his children, killed all of his livestock. And back then, that's how you measured somebody's wealth. It would be akin to your house burning down, your car blowing up, somebody wiping out your 401k and all your bank accounts all at the same time, and the only thing Satan left him was his wife. I'm not saying anything, but Satan's gonna turn her heart against him, curse God and die. And so Job lost everything, and so now he's sitting there with sores on his arm, scraping his skin with broken pieces of pottery, wondering how he got here, and then his three friends, right? They come up and they try to tell him, hey, Job, the reason you're suffering is because, you know, you've done wrong. You're in sin. And so Job says in chapter 13, verse 14, he says, why should I take my flesh and my teeth and put my life in my hand? Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Now, that's an odd thing to say. Why should I take my flesh into my teeth? What's, this is a familiar proverb of his day. It's referring to an animal. You ever watch animal documentaries? You know, you're cheering for the gazelle, but it doesn't get away. And so that predator, if he's surrounded by other predators, what does he do? He keeps that prey in his teeth. He keeps the flesh in his teeth. He's either afraid the animal will get away or that another predator is going to take it from him. So an animal that's actively protecting his kill here, he doesn't want anything to take it from him. He's going to keep it in his teeth until he feels it's good and ready to drop it on the ground. And Job says, am I going to take my flesh in my teeth? Am I going to cling on to my life so tightly that I won't allow God to take anything from it? He says, will I take something into my hands? Will I take my life into my hands? It's the same thing there. You know, when you take something in your hand, you hold it in your hands, it's so precious to you, you're not going to let anybody take it from you. Like when you watch those spy movies and they have like this microfiche and they're, they're putting it in the briefcase and then they, they handcuff it to his wrist. This is not going anywhere. You're gonna take this into your hands. It's gonna get there safely. You will protect it. Job says, do I have to do that with what I have in life? Do I have to hold on to my life and everything that I own so tightly that I won't even allow God to remove it from my life if he wishes? He says, even though he slay me, I'm still gonna trust him. I'm willing to have such a settled confidence in the goodness of God, he can take my life and I'm still gonna praise his name. Child of God, can you do that? Do you live life open-handedly or do you take your life into your hands and you cling so tightly to everything you have, God, I will never let you take this or this or this away. I'm gonna hold tightly. Job says, I'm not gonna live that way. A meek person says they live open-handedly. God, you can add to my life or you can take it away. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. And then what does Job say? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Whether God's giving or taking from my life, it's not gonna change how I see God. That's meekness. It's a settled confidence that God is good no matter what's happening in my life. Why can we trust God under trials? Because he's in control of that trial. If you see your trials as cosmic accidents that happen in your life, and there's this God out there who could save you from this cosmic accident, but he does not, what's that gonna do to how you see God? You're gonna hate God. What a, what a vile, uncaring being that I have all these cosmic accidents happening to me. You have the power to take it from me, and yet you just sit there and watch me suffer. It's gonna make you mad. You'll stop going to church. You'll stop reading your Bible. You'll stop praying. God wants us to know that the trials that are in our life are not cosmic accidents. They're put there by him. Isaiah chapter 45, in verse seven says, 
I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now this word calamity here, it means hardship. It means trial, it means struggle, it means pain, it means a state of misery. God says, I am the Lord who does all these things. Does that give you a problem? Knowing that any pain, difficulty, and suffering that you have in your life comes from God? It's even greater pain and misery when you think that Satan's in control. When you think that your life is just, you're just a victim of cosmic accidents, time and chance. We just live in a fallen world. It stinks, but it's where we live. You've got to see difficulty, adversity, and hardship is something God brings into your life. And if, here's the neat thing. If God is in control of your hardship and God is fully sovereign and yet he's fully good and perfectly holy, then any hardship that you have in your life is something God wants there because he wants to refine you with it. I'll give you an example. You guys remember the prophet Jonah? Y'all know Jonah. You've been, you've been reading Jonah since you were a little kid in the Golden Book of Children's Bible Stories, haven't you? Well, Jonah it was, it was sort of a reluctant prophet, and that's, to put it mildly, God says, I want you to go preach to these Ninevites, these sworn enemies of Israel, and I want you to uh, preach this message of repentance so that I can bring them to a place of repentance and, and bring them back so I don't have to destroy them. Well, Jonah wanted to see him destroyed. I don't want you to save my enemy. I want you to destroy him. So he gets on a boat going the opposite way, we all know how the story goes, right? God prepares a great fish, swallows them up. Jonah decides better to do God's will than to be fish food. So I'm gonna go ahead and preach. But when Jonah does preach, when Jonah does preach, do you know he preaches the shortest? He just phones it in. This is the shortest, lamest excuse for a sermon ever. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Let's see what you do with that. Let's see if anybody repents from that sermon. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to preach the shortest message ever in hopes that they won't come to faith. He did that because he didn't care about the people. By the way, put that in your notes right there. Short sermons equal your pastor doesn't care about you. Okay? Do you all write that down? So here at Unity, friends, you are loved. You are well loved, aren't you? Okay, well, there you go. So Jonah did not care, so he preached a short sermon. I don't care if it changes your life. I don't care if God converts you. I don't care if you understand the message. Yet 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. But God used this sinning prophet, this wicked prophet, who preached the weakest message ever and yet did this great revival, which means the, the change in the people has nothing to do with the power of the preacher. So Nineveh's hearts got changed, but did Jonah's heart get changed? Nope, he was still sulking. When he sees Nineveh from the greatest to the least putting sackcloth on themselves and on their animals in repentance, he was kind of mad. How dare they? I want them dead. And so he sits there looking at the city, watching their repentance, shaking his head, sitting on a hill. And yet God, we read in Jonah, says this. Jonah chapter four says, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah so that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Isn't that neat? God even cares that we're comfortable. Story doesn't end there. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. He's a carnal man. I don't care that these people aren't going to hell. I'm just happy that I'm comfortable. It says, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Pop quiz. How well were you listening? Okay. Who created the plant that gave Jonah comfort? Who was it? God. All right. 
Who created the worm that destroyed the plant that gave him comfort? Also God. Okay, who then, after the plant was destroyed, sent a scorching hot east wind so that he would grow faint and weary and tired? Who was that? Also God. Are you seeing where we're going here? God does care about our comfort, but what is God most concerned about? That we are holy, that we act like him. And so what did God bring into Jonah's life to make him more like him? He brought hardship. God brought hardship into his life. Do you have hardship in your life? Are you willing under meekness to acknowledge that hardship is there by God? This isn't an accident. Satan didn't go out of control. Don't, stop talking about what Satan is doing. Satan doesn't do anything independently of God. God allows Satan to work at times, like in the story of Job. I'll let you, Satan, do certain things, but you can't go any further. Everything is under God's sovereign care and control. So because God is sovereign and in control, when I'm suffering, every suffering has a purpose. Give you another example. How about Paul? Paul had something so painful in his life, and the Bible doesn't say what it was. He described it as a thorn in the flesh. You ever have a thorn? It's exquisite pain. But Paul had something in his life that was so miserable, he called it a thorn in his flesh, and Paul persistently kept praying for God to remove it. He got up to three times, and I think he would have kept going if God let him. Eventually, God in his mercy said, hey, Paul, stop praying for this. 2 Corinthians 12, 8, Paul says, three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that this should leave me. But he says, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. God says, I don't want that thorn to go away. I want that painful, difficult, miserable thing to stay right where it is because I'm using it to keep you humble. I'm using it to draw you to myself. I'm using it to display my strength through your weakness. And so sometimes, friends, the very thing that we might be praying for today is yet the very thing that God wants to remain in our life. It's not that God isn't answering your prayer. He's answering by saying, not now. This needs to stay in your life for a little bit. Now, it doesn't mean we don't continue praying. I always tell folks, keep praying for God to remove it until he changes your heart or he changes your situation. But sometimes we can arrive at the place where like, you know what, God, you're doing a lot of good in my life through this. And so that's what meekness does. Meekness says, when I'm struggling, when I'm in trial, I'm gonna trust God anyway because he's fully in control. When we want to be in control, when we wanna take our life into our hands, when we wanna take our flesh into our teeth, we wanna protect what we have, this is a recipe for fear and anxiety. Any of you struggling with fear and anxiety today? Can I tell you where fear and anxiety come from? Fear and anxiety comes from a Christian who yet lacks the discipline of meekness. You don't have a settled trust in God yet that he's going to do good in your life through this. You're in control. And when you realize that your power is so weak that you can't control your life the way you want to, it'll make you panic. It'll make you scared. It'll make you anxious and fearful. Fear arises from a lack of faith and trust and a settled confidence that what God is doing is by his doing and he's in control. Instead, what are we to do with our, fear, our cares? 1 Peter 5 says, cast it on him. Humble yourselves, therefore, into the mighty hand of God at the proper time. He may exalt you, casting your anxieties upon him, knowing that he cares for you. B, we're gonna look at what else meekness looks like. Meekness means we trust the authorities God has placed in our life. And the example here is Sarah. We find her in 1 Peter chapter 3. It says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, means you're married to a lost guy. He's not going to church. He doesn't talk like a Christian. He doesn't act like a Christian. 
He's in this for himself. He's unsaved. Even if you're married to that guy, he says, they might be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a, here's our word meekness, with a gentle and quiet spirit which is in God's sight very precious, for this is how holy women who hoped in God, notice their hope is in God, not their leader. You can be married to a real loser of a guy and still not be anxious because your trust is in God, not the leader. This is how holy women who hoped in God adorned themselves by submitting to their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. So even if you're married to a real difficult fellow, can you still have a settled confidence in God in your life enough that you can treat him well, that you can treat him with kindness, even though he's not giving it to you. You can. And I'll tell you this, but long before God ever told wives submit to your husbands in Ephesians 5, just a few verses before that, he talks to the entire church. He says in Ephesians 5, submitting yourselves unto one another. Why? Because they're worth it? No. Out of reverence for Christ, my reverence for Christ, my trust in him, my settled confidence that he's in control means I can submit one to another. I don't always have to strive for what I want in church. I don't have to push my agenda in church because it's not about me, it's about him. And I trust God. Beyond this, 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3, uh, Paul was talking to the Corinthian church, by the way, who is one of the most carnal churches out there. They were a very fighting church. I'm a Paul, I'm a Paulist. And he told them, brothers, I couldn't address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants of Christ. Why? For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not people of the flesh? In other words, you're obeying what your, your flesh wants to do? He says, and you're just behaving in a, in a human way? He says, you're acting like lost people. He says, I can't talk to you as spiritual people. You're acting as, as little babies. How, do you, how can you tell when somebody's a spiritual baby? They don't possess meekness. They're striving and fighting and there's anger and there's jealousy and there's discord and people are complaining and gossiping and just, there's just tension. Whenever that is there, meekness is not present. You can't be both meek and jealous, fighting, striving, angry, complaining, backbiting, bitter. When those arise in our life, Paul says, we're behaving as mere men. We're, we're doing what happens out there in the lost world, but we're not meek. It doesn't show that we have a settled trust in God with our authorities. Peter goes further than that. He says, what about outside the church? 1 Peter 2, 13 says, be subject to the, for the Lord's sake. Once again, it's because God's in control, not because you like these people. Let your settled confidence in God, your meekness, treat your earthly authorities this way. He says, be subject to... It's the same word as wives under their husbands, to be subject to every human institution, every authority in your life, whether it's an emperor supreme, governors that are sent by him. He says, this is the will of God. What's God's will for my life? For you to trust him, even with your authorities. In church, at home, uh, out there with the White House, trust God. What about on the job? He says, Peter goes on, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect and not just to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. And I love this word unjust just because it's so clear. It's the word scolia. We get scoliosis, curvature of the spine. He says, don't just be submissive to the good bosses, the one you like. That's not real godliness. Unsaved people love bosses that are good to them. But as a Christian, can you trust God enough with your boss that you can be good even to the ones who are crooked? 
That's what meekness looks like. I can trust God with my boss. I can still work hard for him even though he's unkind to me. What if he's lost? Are lost people still under God's control? They are. Proverbs 21.1, what does it say? The king's heart, the highest authority in the land, even the king's heart is where? It's in the hand of God, which means it's under his control. That's what it means to be in the hand of God. God can control it, do whatever he wants with it. He says, like the rivers of water in the hand of the Lord, he turns it wherever he will. What Solomon is saying here is, you're willing to trust that God is sovereign over all things. He keeps the earth rotating and moving. He keeps us alive. He keeps the ecosystem going. You are willing to trust that God created the universe and formed the rivers as he wanted to, but somehow we're not going to trust God with our authorities. He says, that doesn't make sense. You're willing to trust that God is in control of creation. Trust that God is in control of your authorities as well, even the lost ones. You remember Jeremiah? Jeremiah has a sort of a nickname. We often call him the weeping prophet. It's because he had good reason to cry. There were a lot of bad things happening in Jeremiah's day. Remember, this is the time Jeremiah was prophesying when Nebuchadnezzar and his men were sieging their city of Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah. And under a siege, nothing comes in or goes out, which means eventually people start starving. They start eating their babies. I'm, I'm, that's not a joke. They, that's what they do. In other sieges, it said they ate donkey heads and dove's dung. Now, that's pretty bad. You got to be pretty hungry for that. And in, under those circumstances, the people are so weak. And then in 589 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he starts killing the people of God, just hacking and slashing God's people to death. God's people, his chosen people. And then he burns the holy city of Jerusalem down. And he destroys what is arguably the greatest temple to ever exist at the Temple of Solomon. He destroyed it. Why am I saying all this? I want you to see what God says about Nebuchadnezzar, the guy who did all of these things. In Jeremiah 27, the guy who's witnessing all this says in verse 4, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with men and animals that are on the earth. He says, and I give it, the earth and whatever's in it. He says, I give it to, whatever, to whomever seems right to me. That's a declaration of sovereignty. This earth belongs to me, not you. And I will give anything that's on this earth to whomever I please. I'm in control of it, even sometimes to unsaved people. And then look what he says about Nebuchadnezzar. Now I, God, have given all these lands into the hand of who? Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, which is just a byword for sin and evil and decadence. And then what does he call Nebuchadnezzar? My servant. That all that Nebuchadnezzar was doing was evilly motivated by Nebuchadnezzar, but it was under God's control. He was the servant of God in bringing discipline to his wayward and sinful people. All of this happened because of God. Does that cause you problems? It does if you don't have meekness. It does if you don't have a settled confidence that no matter what I see here on earth, God is good. No matter what happens to me and whatever, whatever is taken away or added to my life, I believe God is good. And I have a settled confidence in that goodness such that it doesn't matter if he takes my life, I'm still gonna trust him. Nebuchadnezzar can be doing all these evil things and yet I will trust in him. Let's take a meekness test, shall we? How do you do with authority? I don't mean your good ones, your boss who who you know, slaps you on the back and goes hunting with you and you go out and you know, have burgers and steaks together in the backyard and 
shoot hoops or whatever you do with your boss. I don't mean the good ones. I mean, how do you do when there's an authority in your life and you don't like what they're doing? How do you do with the crooked ones? How do you do with the ones that disagree with you? Are you still good? Do you still work hard? Do you still speak well of them? Or do you complain, backbite, slander, get mad, quit, walk away? Somebody makes me mad in church, I run. Fine, you're not gonna do it my way, I'm gonna go. That's not meekness. I'm gonna leave my job. That's not meekness. I'm gonna walk away from my mate. I don't have to take this, I don't have to. Yeah, you do. Jesus left us an example that we should take it. When I walk away from friends and I stop talking to them and I won't reconcile and I won't be, I won't bring it back together, I won't make attempts to show love because I'm offended and I'm mad and I should never have to feel that way and we just walk away. Friends, that's not meekness. How do you do with authority when they do something you don't like? That is when you're gonna realize whether you're a meek person, whether you trust in God or whether you just trust in yourself and what you're able to personally control with your own two hands. The last one here is the example of Jesus. Meekness in dealing peacefully with other people. How do we do when people are mean to me, when they do unkind, ungodly things? And the example the Bible gives us is Jesus. Now, Jesus is the very definition of meekness. In fact, did you know this? There's only one place in the Bible where Jesus had an opportunity to describe himself. I am this and this kind of a person. And do you know what two words he used to describe himself? Jesus, self-describing, said, I am a, I am gentle and lowly of heart. Go ahead, look it up. It's in Matthew 11, verse 25, or 29, rather. Uh, he says, I am gentle. That's the word meek. That when Jesus has an opportunity to describe himself, the very first word out of his mouth is, I am meek. I have a full, settled confidence in God. I'm not striving. I'm not here to get my way. I'm not here to push an agenda. I trust God. Did we see that play out in his life? All over the place. What about Jesus when he came in the triumphal entry? What did he ride upon? Was it a big mighty white steed? No, that's what you would ride into town when you're there to conquer. It's what Jesus is gonna ride there at the Battle of Armageddon, he's there to conquer. What did Jesus ride at the triumphal entry? Colt, the foal of a donkey. A king, when he would ride a donkey into town, it meant that he was coming in peace. He's not there to conquer. He is fully settled, has a settled confidence and trust in God's plan that even when Jesus is not looking forward to being crucified, he's praying in Gethsemane, you know, if there be any other way, let's do it. If there's a plan B, if you want to call an audible father, this is the time to do it because I don't want to be separated from you. I'm really not looking forward to this suffering. Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. That's meekness. It's when you have a settled confidence in God and it doesn't shake your faith. 1 Peter 2 also describes Jesus. He says, for to this you have been called. Uh-oh, he wants us to be like Jesus. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. Why did Jesus not threaten? Why did he not return evil for evil? It says, because he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. So Jesus, he got lied about, didn't he? They, they paid people to lie about Jesus. Did he lie in return? No. He didn't let other people's sin change him. When people were, were cursing him and spitting upon him, 
He didn't spit back. When people were beating Jesus, plucking out his beard and striking him with a reed and putting a crown of thorns on his head, would, did he respond with evil in return? No. Would that change your image of Jesus if he had? Spitting upon Jesus and Jesus spitting back said, plucking out Jesus' beard, Jesus grabs their beard in return and begins to just kind of bash on their heads. Would that change your view of Jesus? You're like, well, that's not meek. That's not trusting God with your enemies. He entrusted himself who judges justly. And the Bible says this is the example for us to follow in that steps. You don't have to get revenge on yourself. Meekness when others hurt you is this. Here's your meekness test. When you have it within your power to hurt somebody and you choose not to, that's when you're meek. You have it fully within your power, maybe not to physically hurt somebody. I mean, some of y'all, I don't see you just pounding on people back in the foyer. Very rarely do we break up fights here at Unity Baptist Church like that. Very seldom. Um, but what we can do sometimes is we have it within our power to wound somebody and destroy their reputation. When you have that chance, and maybe you, are, you could justly do it because they hurt you. Maybe they're slandering you. Do you slander in return? Somebody's complaining about you, do you complain about them in return? You, meekness means you have it in your power to hurt somebody and you choose not to because of the nature and character of who you are, not because they deserve it. I'll give you an example of meekness. Happens to come from a dog this time. My son has a dog named Cora, and she will be the subject, I'm sure, of many an illustration uh, henceforth. Well, they got this dog, Cora, a unique little dog. One of these dogs has two different color eyes and stuff. It's a really pretty dog. It's a mix of 50% husky and 50%, I don't know, golden retriever or something like that, whatever makes them really big. This dog is like 85 pounds of puppy. Now, when they first got Cora, Cora was not meek. She was not surrendering her power to another. She did whatever she wanted to. But under careful training from my son and his wife, Cora does all kinds of neat things. You know, Cora will lay down, she'll sit, she'll roll over, she'll, uh, she'll do figure eights in and out of my son's legs. Still haven't figured out the practical application of that, but she'll do it. She'll, he'll call her to heel like a soldier dog. You know how they do, and they'll, they'll get in between their leg and they'll do the little walk thing, you know, as they're, and really neat, jump through my hoop, and that does with the arm, and Cora does whatever he wants. But, so she has surrendered the might and control of herself to her master so that he can, I don't know, entertain family. But I'll show you another thing about meekness in Cora's life is when they go outside, we'll go for big long walks. And anytime you take a really big dog out on a leash with a long walk, would, inevitably what's going to show up? Somebody with a little yappy dog. Little yappy dogs don't like big dogs. And so somebody's got this little, don't email me if you have a cute little dog and he's not yappy, but some are. Your neighbor's dog is. And so these little yabby dogs, they come up and they're, and they're just, they're just barking because they're really insecure. You know, I got this big dog and I'm this little guy. So I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to yap at him. I'm going to lunge at him. I'm going to bite at him. Now, Cora with a single bite could probably swallow these little puppies whole, but she does not. Furthermore, what's really impressive to me is she doesn't pull on the chain at all. She didn't pull on the leash. She just stands there completely nonplussed. Nothing's bothering her. She just stares blankly into the distance as this dog's like, oh, 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 I'm gonna eat your liver, you know? And Cora just stands there, not responding in any way at all because she is meek. Now, in the wild, what would Cora do? There's a McNugget. I'm gonna eat that thing. But because she surrendered her control to her master, what does she do? She just stands there. 
You don't bother me. I think there's a lesson in there for all of us as well, isn't there? That when sometimes in life we've got little yappy dogs in our life, little insecure people, by the way, and that's how you can tell who insecure people are. They're trying to take your security away. You got these little insecure yappy dogs and they're barking, they're biting at you and they're complaining and they're backbiting and they're slandering you. Do you do it in return? You don't if you're meek. You've surrendered your control to the master. You trust him. I don't have to do anything in return. And we can just sit there calmly, blank, stare into the distance, just trusting God and loving my master. You go ahead and do your barking. You jerk on the chain. You bite toward me. You're not gonna get to me. You're not gonna change me to be like you. That's a meek person, someone who has a settled confidence in their master. Number three, and this we're gonna close here, meekness is a characteristic of somebody who's saved. I mean, we call this life signs of the believer for a reason. You wanna know if you're born again or not? Look through these characteristics and see if these are in your life and increasing. And so, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You have a settled confidence and trust in God that he's in control, he means you good, so I don't have to stress, I don't have to worry, I don't have to get angry. All of God's children are meek. And the reason that we're meek today is because we learned to do it at the moment we got saved, didn't we? Let's go back through the, the attributes of the Beatitudes again. When you came to God, you came to God because you realized you were poor in spirit, that in your spiritual identity before God, your spirit, you're poor, you're impoverished, you have nothing to offer him, you can't save yourself. And then drawing near to God and trying to find someone who can give you salvation, you discovered how holy God is and you saw yourself and you began to repent. And you saw your need to distance yourself from your sin. And then in meekness, what did we do? We fully rested our eternal future and confidence on God by faith. So that when I close my eyes in death one day and I plunge into the darkness and I get tunnel vision for the last time and my heart monitor stops and flatlines, I know even there, Psalm 139 says, even in death, even in Sheol, you are with me. And I just have this settled confidence that even when I close my eyes in death, I have nothing to fear and I'm just gonna fall back and do a trust fall into Jesus' arms. That's meekness. Why are we meek today as Christians? It's because we were meek when we came to Jesus. We have a settled confidence in him, in him alone to save us. If that's not you, friends, it's because you're still lost. If you're trusting in yourself, you're trusting in good works, you're trusting that you've been to church all your life or that your daddy or your grandpa was in the ministry or that your family built this own church with your own two hands, if you're trusting in something other than Jesus alone and you're not impoverished in spirit, you're not mourning over your sins and you're not meek, fully trusting in Jesus, it's because you're lost. Romans 3, 19 to 20 says, now we know that whatever the law says here, okay, the Old Testament law, it speaks to those who are under the law so that all mouths may be stopped. God won't allow us to boast in his presence. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the, here's what I want you to notice, for by the works of the law, just obeying truths in the Bible so that you can earn righteousness with God. He says, by the works of the law, no one will be justified in his sight. Justified means to be declared righteous by a judge, not guilty. You're not gonna get the not guilty verdict because of the good that you did. And if you're trusting in yourself and you're not fully relying on God, you lack meekness, it's because you're not a child of the kingdom. Friends, I say this all the love of my heart, you're going to hell. 
You need to trust only in Jesus, fully resting in him, trust fall into his arms, and not trusting in the good that we ourselves do. If that's the need of your heart this morning, I encourage you to respond in faith and in meekness. As we close here, what does it mean that the meek will inherit the earth? I mean, do we get everything? What is this? I think uh, the meek inheriting the earth is best explained by Daniel 7.27. He says, And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to whom? The people of the saints of the Most High. We genuinely inherit the earth. There will be a thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ on earth after the tribulation, and following that, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and we will live on the new earth with the new Jerusalem, and we will reign with him. Who is it that inherits the earth? Who is it that's actually going to walk into the kingdom of God and live there as a resident? It's those who are poor in spirit, those who are mourning, and those who are meek. Do these attributes describe you today? If not, friends, you need to come to Jesus and you need to be born again because it's an attribute in each one of our lives. And having been saved through this act of meekness, fully trusting in Jesus, we continue to trust him. We don't just trust Jesus for our eternal life. We're willing to trust him with the present life as well. Can you do that? We all need to do that. Let's close in prayer. Father, we, thank you. we just thank you today for your word, which guides us and provides us infinitely wise counsel. Lord, you show us the path. Your word is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It shows us, it illuminates the path that leads to you. And when we go off that well-lit path and we just kind of venture off into our own business, into our own works, into sin, we get away from you, and you're not a priority to us in our life. God, I pray that you would, you would draw our attention to the well-lit path that leads to you. God, I pray for any soul that might be here today who's not convinced in themselves that these attributes belong to them. If there's any here who, as we describe these attributes of, of being poor in spirit, and they see themselves as actually having something good to offer God, they're trusting in their good works, trusting that they're a good person. God, will you convict them of their sin? God, I pray if there's anybody here who will acknowledge that they sin, but they just feel like, eh, you're not gonna punish it. God, that you will bring them to a place of mourning over their sin and repentance. And if there's any here, God, who does not display meekness, that they're still trusting in themselves and what they can do, that they've not surrendered their power to you, that they don't have a full, settled confidence in you and your strength, God, that you would grant them that today by faith. Bring them into the kingdom, God, that they too might inherit the earth. We ask all this in Christ's name. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.